the horror genre. I'm your host, Nicole, and it's time to share another dark tale. Happy New Year and welcome back, folks. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday season and that you enjoyed the ghost stories last month. But we're back to business as usual. And tonight we're continuing the Religion and Horror series with The Serpent and the Rainbow from 1988, directed by Wes Craven. And I'm joined by friend of the show, Bob from Straight Chilling. Welcome back, Bob. Hey, thanks so much for having me back on. Yeah, I think last time uh, was when we did the little Candyman miniseries. Yeah, yeah, that was a lot of fun covering that whole franchise, uh, the good and the bad of it. Yeah, yeah, it really was. I Like you said, the good, the bad, it was all fun, all fun <laughs> in different ways. <laughs> and the ugly, of course. Yes, and, and of course, we can't forget the ugly. Um, so how was your holiday? Did you get any blues for Christmas? No. Uh, well, my holidays were pretty good. Um, super low key. We didn't go anywhere. We just stayed in town and hung out with family. Uh, but nobody ever gets me any movies because I guess it'd be just kind of difficult to know what I already have. Like, so they just, you know, they avoid it pretty much entirely. <laughs> Did you get yourself any blues for Christmas? Oh, you know, every month is, it's got a bit of Christmas for me in that regard. So yeah, of, of course. <laughs> so, um, please share with the folks a little bit of what your religious background is. Sure. Yeah. So I, I wasn't raised in, uh, any specific religion, I had a lot of friends, you know, living in the Southeast. I had a lot of friends that definitely did grow up in churches, uh, primarily Southern Baptist. So I would be invited to their churches a lot uh, when I was a teenager. And yeah, I'd go here and there, but I never, I never really found a place that I, I particularly liked. I is pretty much early college. I started playing uh, music in churches for just churches all over town for uh, quite a few years. And I eventually did find a church uh, through that that I liked quite a bit. I ended up staying there for about five years or so. And it was described as sort of half Pentecostal and half Southern Baptist. It was an odd kind of blend. Uh, But I played music at that church for five years and I, I quite liked it. They eventually moved to Atlanta. And then I sort of just started traveling again, playing wherever, whoever needed a drummer. And yeah, I did that for like 10 years or so. And that that's kind of the bulk of my exposure to religion. I don't know that I um, would necessarily call myself any, any uh, you know, a Christian or anything else. I'm sort of just like, I guess, more open spiritually to things, but um, nothing real specific. Yeah, that uh, playing in church bands, like I think a, a lot of us have been there. I mean, I was, I was in for the long haul at church regardless, but that was, um, I played drums also, um, in several worship bands. And, um, I have a fun story about that actually. So my dad wanted me to play a musical instrument and I had piano lessons when I was little and I hated it. And he, but he made me stick with it for like a year. And he was like, we still don't like it after a year. Like we'll try something else. But he said, I really, I really want you to learn how to play musical instruments. I was like, okay. So we tried a few things and landed on drums because like our drummer was like going to college and I liked it and sort of took to it. It just sort of like made sense to me. And so at this time I was maybe 16 and I was at 
our little assembly of God, like country church. And um, of course, in in like Pentecostal, they like their instruments. You know, they like it. Yeah. Just a little rocking. They like it loud. They don't mind electric guitar. You can do drums. You can do all of that. However, you cannot play drums in a skirt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that would be somewhat difficult. (laughs) Yes. And so at this time, I mean, this was in like, this was in the late 90s, early 2000s. It's not like this was in the 70s. So there was no rule put forth that like you couldn't wear pants at church, but it was just kind of like frowned upon. Um, Mm -hmm. And so nobody ever said anything to my face, but apparently when I was up on stage every week playing the drums in my pants. Like it was a little bit of a to-do. It was a little bit of a pearl clutching. <laughs> I can't believe she's wearing pants in the house of God. <laughs> it's like, not only is she not a singer, she's playing the drums. She's wearing pants. Yeah. That's a boy's instrument. What is she doing? <laughs> um, but yeah, that was, that was fun. It was kind of fun um, being, well, I guess at the time I was the only like girl drummer that I knew. Um, of course now it's not that big of a deal, you know, but it, it was, it was a lot of fun regardless of the, uh, the whispering and the pearl clutching. So that's my dream. Yeah. That just kind of makes it (laughs) even better. Honestly, like, yeah, I'm breaking the rules. Yeah. You know, we're all trying to be rebellious teenagers and play that contemporary music anyway. So it just, that's, that's as rebellious as I could get at like 16. Heck yeah. (laughs) You do what you can. So we are talking about The Serpent and the Rainbow, and um, I chose this film and invited you on. Up until now, I have pretty much most of the films I've covered have been um, suggested by guests, but I specifically asked you on for Serpent and the Rainbow because we both share an affinity for New Orleans and New Orleans culture, and of course, uh, voodoo is a part of that culture. And even though Serpent in the Rainbow, it's not it's not New Orleans. It's not even specifically New Orleans voodoo. It's traditional Haitian voodoo. It's in Haiti. But I thought, you know what? This might be a good one. It's a little strange little path that, that Bob and I share. So had you ever seen Serpent in the Rainbow before? I had seen it once before several years ago, and it was a little hazy in my memory. And I, I'm glad you invited me on for this because I really enjoyed revisiting it. You know, we'll get we'll get to all of it for sure. But um, I think it's a bit of an underseen Wes Craven movie, and it's totally worth watching. I think I like it a, a good bit. From Wes Craven, director of A Nightmare on Elm Street, comes a story of the forbidden world between life and death. There's a door to the mystical. And you just walk through it. Somebody brought him back from the grave. And I want to know how they did it. Death is not the end. I'll take your soul. You think you can take these people's secrets and just walk away? The shadows of the imagination ah! lies the ultimate nightmare. Don't let them bury me. I'm not dead. The Serpent and the Rainbow. 
All right. So let's get into, well, first of all, spoiler alert, y'all, I'm a little rusty because like I have not done this in a couple months and I also have been sick for like a week. Today, I finally ate a regular meal for the first time in like a week for dinner. Heck yeah. Oh, so I'm feeling a little rusty. So spoiler alert before I forget. And then um, let's get into this plot synopsis. In 1978, a Haitian man named Christophe mysteriously dies in a French missionary clinic while a voodoo parade marches past his window. The next morning, Christophe is buried in a traditional Catholic funeral. A mysterious man dressed in a suit who was outside Christophe's hospital window on the night he died is in attendance. As the coffin is lowered into the ground, Christophe's eyes open and a tear rolls down his cheek. Seven years later, Harvard anthropologist Dennis Allen is in the Amazon rainforest studying rare herbs and medicines with a local shaman. He drinks a potion and experiences a hallucination of the same black man from Christoph's funeral, surrounded by corpses in a bottomless pit. Back in Boston, Allen is approached by a pharmaceutical company looking to investigate a drug used in Haitian voodoo to create zombies. The company wants Allen to acquire the drug for use as a super anesthetic. The corporation provides Allen with funding and sends him to Haiti, which is in the middle of a revolution. Allen's exploration in Haiti, assisted by Dr. Marielle Duchamp, locates Christophe, who is alive after having been buried seven years earlier. Allen is taken into custody, and the commander of the Tonton Makut, Captain Petro, the same man from Christoph's funeral and Alan's vision in the Amazon warns Alan to leave Haiti. Continuing his investigation, Alan finds a local man, Mozart, who is reported to have knowledge of the procedure for creating the zombie drug. Alan pays Mozart for a sample, but Mozart sells him rat poison instead. After embarrassing Mozart in public, Alan persuades him to show him how to produce the drug for a fee of $1,000. Alan is arrested again by the Tantan Makut and tortured by having a nail driven through his scrotum and then dumped on the street with the message that he must leave Haiti or be killed. Alan again refuses to leave and meets with Mozart to create the drug. Alan has a nightmare of Petro, revealed to be a Bakur who turns enemies into zombies and steals their souls. When Alan wakes up, he is lying next to Christoph's sister who has been decapitated. The Tantamakut enter, take photos, and frame Alan for murder. Petro tells Alan to leave the country and never return, lest he be convicted of the murder, executed, and then his soul stolen by Petro. Petro puts Alan on a U.S.-bound plane, but Mozart sneaks aboard and gives Alan the zombie drug. Mozart asks Alan to tell people about him so that Mozart can achieve international fame. Alan agrees and returns to Boston with his mission apparently completed. At a celebration dinner, the wife of Alan's employer is possessed by Petro, who warns Alan of his own imminent death. Alan returns to Haiti, where his only ally, a holy man named Lucian, is killed by Petro and Mozart is beheaded as a sacrifice for Petro's power. Alan is then sprayed with the zombie powder and quote-unquote dies. Later, Petro steals Alan's body from the hospital before the death can be reported to the U.S. Embassy. Petro takes Alan to a graveyard, where, helpless in his coffin, Alan sees that Petro has captured Marielle and will sacrifice her. Alan is then buried alive with a tarantula to keep him company. 
Waking up in his coffin a few hours later, Alan is rescued by Kristoff, who was in the graveyard. Having escaped Petro's trap, Alan returns to the Tontamakut headquarters looking for Marielle. There, Alan defeats Petro through a battle of wills, using Lucian's white magic to drive a nail into Petro's growing and, and sends his soul to hell. As the Haitian people celebrate the downfall of Jean-Claude Duvalier, Marielle proclaims the nightmare is over. What a synopsis. Yeah. <laughs> How exciting. <laughs> There's a lot going on there. There is. Yeah. Voodoo is a wild thing, wild. or at least this movie will have you believe that. Yes. So this is a great time then before we get into the specifics of this movie um, to talk a little bit about the history of voodoo, um, like what it is, what its different sort of denominations are, um, because I think having an understanding of that really helps a lot in viewing this movie. Um, and even though Voodoo is one of those things that like every American kind of knows what it is, has some kind of framework for what it is. And, you know, we usually think about the voodoo dolls and the like zombie queens with big turbans and all of that kind of stuff. But it's also usually kind of viewed as a dark thing and kind of like an evil thing. Um, and I knew there was a little bit more to it than that, but I didn't really know the specifics of it and still, until I started looking into it for this movie. Um, so there's basically three different kinds of voodoo. There is Haitian voodoo, which is like the original that originated in Haiti. There's Louisiana voodoo. And then there's hoodoo. And... So I have definitions for the three of these. Um, Haitian voodoo is an African religion that developed in Haiti between the 16th and 19th centuries. Uh, it arose through a process of syncretism between several traditional religions of West and Central Africa and Roman Catholicism. That's right. We can say Who would have thought? I know. Thought? I was like, wild. I'm trying to get away from like traditional Christianity in this episode. And yeah. there she is, you know? <laughs> it's everywhere. Yeah, it's everywhere. Are you going to do? Um, there is no central authority in control of the religion. And much diversity exists among practitioners who are known as voodooists, voodoo saints, or souvertures. New Orleans voodoo... It's still pretty close to that because it came, voodoo came to New Orleans, of course, from, from Haiti. But it says New Orleans voodoo is also known as voodoo Catholicism. It is a religion connected to nature, spirits, and ancestors. The core belief of New Orleans voodoo is that one God does not interfere in daily lives, but that spirits do. Connection with these spirits can be obtained through various rituals such as dance, music, chanting and snakes so that sounds a little more like the traditional like stereotypical voodoo that we have in our mind right yeah i was watching some videos and stuff this was a, a it was a voodoo priest who lives in new orleans and he was sort of explaining some of the day-to-day -day things that uh, someone pract who practices voodoo today might do and it's 
I mean, it's not anything too crazy for the most part. Some of it is a little interesting, but you know, they've got like sort of a prayer table set up with candles and you sort of start your day by praying first to your ancestors. Like your ancestors are a really big part of voodoo. And then after that, you would then start praying to, to God. Um, you like this particular guy would, he, you know, pour himself a cup of coffee and then pour a cup for his ancestors and, and like have a conversation with them. And that's how he starts his morning every day, which is, you know, nothing too crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also kind of got into um, Grigri, uh, which they're these like amulets that people wear to bring good luck or to bring whatever specific fortune to you that you want to have happen. And he got into like how to make those. And it's usually just, it's a lot of herbs put in a little satchel that you wear around your neck kind of thing. And um, medicine bottles too. Are you, did you find anything about these medicine bottles? Um, Not specifically the medicine bottles, but um, the, all the stuff about like the herbs and, and everything Mm -hmm. natural that, that is where I found more of the hoodoo stuff is about that kind of, you know, making potions and, uh, and that kind of thing. The, um, I, I guess they're, they're also sometimes called root workers, yes. people who practice hoodoo, um, or, uh, like plantation voodoo or something like, I think that's another one, but the, the medicine bottle, he was showing you how to make one and it's just an empty glass bottle and you put all kinds of herbs and like, you know, lemon peels, lemon rind, mm-hmm. all, all kinds of stuff in there. And then you, you finish it off with grain alcohol. And you just keep it in the house. And anytime you're feeling a bit ill, you're supposed to just pour a shot of it and and take it. And it's, you know, cures what ails you. But he does stress, like, if it doesn't cure what ails you, go to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not a, a guaranteed cure-all. So I thought that was interesting. That is, Yeah, that is interesting. I, um, I found kind of the whole little hoodoo branch interesting. Um... And even on Wikipedia, it says hoodoo spirituality. Like there's like brackets around spirituality because voodoo is an established like world religion. Like it is a religion. Um, they have they have like priests and practitioners and they do believe in like a God and they have certain gods. And so they have, you know, all the structure, whereas hoodoo is just as a catch all. There's no requirements that you have any specific beliefs. Um, it's more of just a spiritual practice. Um, and like you said, the folks who practice it are called, um, let me see, I have a list here, root workers, conjure doctors. There's like, there's a few others. Um, but fun fact, uh, I believe that the, uh, like voodoo practitioner in the exorcist believer that that was her, she was a root worker. So I guess she was specifically like a hoodoo spiritualist. So I found that kind of interesting. But in Serpent and the Rainbow, what we have is your OG, traditional, Haitian voodoo. And now that I know kind of the little, like the subtle differences, um, definitely watching it, I was like, oh, I see. Like, it's very, there's some very clear, you know, there's some very clear themes here in that. So, um, so yeah, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about about that, about some of the stuff we saw, like the main one to me was how we saw the Virgin Mary in this parade. And, um, Marielle said that they worshiped the Virgin Mary as, um, 
uh, Urzuli, who is one of their deities, but they view Urzuli and Virgin Mary as like the same. And that was another thing I found was that a lot of, they worship Catholic saints, but like a lot of the Catholic saints, they uh, say assign like the name of one of their deities. So it is very like, it's very meshed. That is pretty interesting. I, um, Urzuli, I was like, I don't know what that is. And I had to look it up and I'm trying to find my notes on it now. Um, did you find any information on what Urzuli is? Urzuli, let's see. Oh, okay. It says she is often associated with water, fluidity, femininity, and feminine bodies. What I, what I was able to find on it was, I guess there's two Urzuli. So Urzuli Freda and Urzuli Dantor are considered sisters in Haitian voodoo. Uh, Freda is known for her jealousy and unpredictable nature, but also her power as a lover. And on the other hand, Dantor is revered as a fierce and loving mother figure, which I guess that makes sense for uh, the Virgin Mary, you know, in that in that context. Yeah, so that would probably be that specific branch. Um, oh, another thing, um, when I was reading about um, specifically Louisiana voodoo, and this has nothing to do with the movie, but um, when they were talking about how basically it's basically like possession as worship, like they invite the spirits to come and like possess them. And that is how they like they pray and they gain power. And that's how like the spirits influence their life is because they do this like the, the dancing and the speaking in tongues and the possession. I was like, that is the church I grew up in. <laughs> Yeah, so I I experienced some of that too uh, playing at a Pentecostal church. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, you you spent time in a Pentecostal church. Um, a lot of speaking in tongues, and there was a lot of anointing people with oil, and they would you know catch the Holy Spirit and uh, you know fall out sometimes. And I I don't know that like anybody ever used the word possession in my church though. Did they actually use that in yours? Uh, no possession okay. definitely is a negative thing. They wouldn't have yeah. called it possession, but um, I, I would consider what, what, what voodoo calls possession. I would consider things like, like being slain in the spirit. Have you ever heard that before? Not that phrase, mm-hmm. but I know what you mean by it. Well, and that's yeah. where very specifically in our denomination, that was when like if you were praying for somebody and you like touched them on the head and they fell down, that was being mm-hmm. like slain in the yeah. spirit. Um, like, of course, you see a lot of televangelists do it and it's this big, ridiculous yeah. thing. But I've seen it happen just in regular church services a lot and it not be a big deal. Um, mm-hmm. But all of that stuff, I was like, and of course, I grew up in the South and so to me, I, and, and I would like to, to dig more into this, but apparently there was whenever um, specifically the Assembly of God denomination was being um, established, there was this black holiness Pentecostal movement that was happening at the same time. And there were actually a lot of um, the black holiness movement was really important in the Pentecostal movement in general. And so I feel like there has to be some crossover, especially since voodoo mm-hmm. has always been kind of a little bit of a collection of faiths and like a blending of faiths. I'm like, there's no way that some of this, this Haitian voodoo spiritualism didn't carry over to black holiness, which then carried over into the larger Pentecostal, which then carried over into my life as a kid. Like that whole trajectory yeah. is fascinating to me. I'm like, it has to be connected. 
did did you guys have any snake handling? No, 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 no. We um we were not that crazy. Um, but we were not far from it. We weren't quite backwoods enough mm. to do snake handling. We uh yeah we didn't have any snake handling either. I think uh one of the more intense moments. So we had uh one of our deacons was a uh, this dude who was retired Navy, and he was a very like big imposing dude. He was scary. He was a scary dude. He was I don't know probably close to seven foot like I don't know six foot eight like he was one of the tallest people I ever met. Big dude, and he had a glass eye. And I'd known him for years and he wouldn't talk. He would, he would preach, but like he wasn't a chatty fellow. So he would just like look at people from across the room and like be silent, which was kind of off putting. But I finally had a conversation with him once and he was telling me about how he lost his eye in the Navy. Something happened on the ship and he lost his eye and he got a glass eye and like prayed over it and was able to then see through it, which was something that he truly believed. I mean, he, believe that he could see through his glass eye, which who knows, you know, but it, it was an interesting conversation to have. It was an interesting fellow. Yeah. I like, Ooh, healing. You got some healing up in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For real. <laughs> well, and that's the interesting thing about, um, not, not just like my experience in church or, you know, like Christianity, but like in a movie like this, where it is very like science-based um, but they're, but they're willing to accept these like ideas of mysticism and these ideas mm-hmm. of spirituality and how both of these things kind of coexist in this movie, I think is what is really, really interesting about it. Um, but so since we're talking about all of the religious stuff, I know this movie has, I've heard it both praised and criticized for its treatment of voodoo. How did you feel about it after like doing a little research and watching it with fresh eyes? Like, what is your opinion of how they handled the religion of voodoo? It, the movie feels to me like it more or less uh, confirms the overall negative connotations that that the average American viewer might have about voodoo. I don't know that it really gets into like the day-to-day stuff since it is really focusing on this drug that is used to create zombies. And then you also have some like pretty evil characters in here. Um, Petro who like, like keeps souls in jars and like visits uh, Dr. Allen in his nightmares and stuff. So like really, I mean, it's a horror movie. So it does like lean into the darker side of voodoo, which is like infinitely interesting in and of itself. But I don't know that it does anything to broaden people's uh, opinions or knowledge of the broader spectrum of what voodoo really is. So it's, it's problematic, I think in that way. Yeah. I had a little bit of a different, view this time it actually was more nuanced than i expected it to be um when i first saw this i think i was a kid and i didn't you know i wasn't thinking about any of these bigger like bigger themes um i found it really interesting that like when we meet marielle who is you know the other she's a doctor she's a scientist um she's very upfront with Dennis about, yeah, this is, I've always practiced this. I still do. And he's, and he's like, how do you reconcile that? And, um, she says there is no conflict between my science and my faith. And she's explaining to him, 
you know, how this is just our culture. And so I do think that we see a lot of just like day to day practicing of it that has that's not um, in any way nefarious. So to me, this movie is like a little rambly and a little all over the place. And I think can be a little bit hard Mm -hmm. to follow. But I do think they, they make a pretty clear delineation between the practitioners of voodoo. And so I think when we have people like Marielle, we have people like Lucian, who's he's basically like a holy man, but he's like mm-hmm. good. Um, and then, so yeah, Marielle, Mozart, and Lucian, all three of them are different practitioners of just, again, like just this religion and they're not doing anything like nefarious. Now the one guy, Petro, like you mentioned, who is nefarious, he's whole hog evil voodoo. I mean, for sure, for sure. Um, and, and I think they could have like taken that back a few notches. Like he's, he can still be evil without some of the super pointed things that we get from him for sure. Um, and I'll get into a little bit of that later when I talk about, I have thoughts about the ending of this movie. (laughs) But another thing I really think was smart is a lot of the super sensational stuff. A lot of the really cliche imagery, like the, um, the little bride looking woman who's like a little Mm -hmm. corpse, um, when like the snake comes out of her mouth and, and bites Dennis on the face, like all that's classic Mm -hmm. voodoo imagery. That doesn't happen in reality. That happens in Dennis's vision. So there's a lot of stuff that happens like in his visions that are stereotypical. And that sort of lines up because like he probably has a lot of the same preconceived notions that we have. Right. So a lot of that stuff is happening in his brain and not presented as this is a real world thing. That's fair. And I, and I do wonder, cause we see him in the Amazon, I believe mm-hmm. at the very beginning of the movie mm-hmm. and he drinks something. Yes. We don't know what it is. And I wonder if I mean, he, it, he has visions like immediately and they are pretty like spooky of him being like pulled into the ground and stuff. I wonder if some of that like lingers over and like, can, and it continues to cause him these, these haunting nightmares and stuff throughout the rest of the movie. So, yeah, that is fair. Some of the imagery is just like it's in his mind. Yeah. I did wonder that, too, actually, if he's still dealing with some of those effects. And, of course, they Mm. tell us that Petro can, like, go into people's dreams. So we're not. So, again, there's a lot of, like, blurring of the line of us not sure 100 percent what's going on all the time. Um, And so, again, we have to wonder, like, is yeah, is this is this is this? Petro giving him the dreams all the time is some of it leftover hallucinogen is some of it just his fears because he's in this culture he's not familiar with there's a there's a lot to be pondered in that realm the I found a little bit of information on like snakes uh, in like voodoo imagery uh, because we see a lot of snakes Mm -hmm, in this mm -hmm. movie they're a big part of voodoo um, and they're like around Dennis in this movie too but so there's a voodoo symbol of Dambala and Aida Wado, uh, which are like uh, uh, voodoo gods. Um, they don't uh, they don't call them gods. I forget what they call them now. But they're represented by two intertwined snakes facing each other with a vertical axis in the middle, which is very reminiscent of the medicine sign commonly seen on like hospitals and pharmaceuticals oh. and stuff like that. And Dennis is a medicine man. You know, yeah. he's there researching medicine. And I thought that was an interesting sort of connection that is a great connection i yeah that's something i didn't think about that's super interesting 
Um, also, I did not, I was wondering, I was like, I was like, why, why is this movie called The Serpent and the Rainbow? And they tell you right in the very beginning that the serpent mm-hmm. is the earth and the rainbow is the heavens. And it, uh, it talks about everyone has to live between. And I guess if you're like a wandering spirit, you're kind of stuck between the two. I was like, oh, that's really, that's a lovely, like, that's lovely imagery. It's a great title. Yeah, yeah, it is. I didn't know what the heck that <laughs> meant either. But l- yeah, luckily they just spoon feed it to you right at the top. Um, Loai, I think, is what they typically call their spirits or gods. Loai. Yep. I can't, um, yep. I came, I came across that too. Resurrection, obviously, is a massive theme when it comes to Christianity. And it, it's also a big theme in this movie and in voodoo when you're talking about zombies and stuff. It's, it's an interesting, like, uh, I guess, double-edged sword in that resurrection represents such a, a positive thing when it comes to Christianity and the Christ story. And of course, you know, like uh, going to heaven, sort of a life after death kind of thing. And then in voodoo, it's this very negative connotation uh, when creating a zombie, which is essentially stealing someone's soul or like enslaving somebody. And I think the idea of resurrection being sort of this negative thing is like in, you know, Christian culture in America is just sort of adds to that negative overall uh, vibe that voodoo gives off. And that might be more of a subconscious thing. I don't know if people would necessarily think about zombies as like a, a true form of resurrection, but it totally is. I just think that's kind of an interesting dichotomy between the two there. Yeah, it's just such a specific thing um, in this movie because, yeah, we're used to zombies being... George Romero sort of changed what we think zombies Mm -hmm. are in modern culture. Um, Totally. And it's so different from from what we have in this movie. And so Christoph, I believe in this movie, his name is Christoph Durand, but... That's a that is a real thing that happened to a real man. His name was Christoph Narcisse, and um, that this this movie is based semi based on a true story of a anthropologist who went to Haiti after hearing this story. Um, and so this whole thing about this uh, zombie dust or whatever I'm sure that's not what it was called in real life, but. Um, this idea that this sensational piece that kicks off this story is like a real thing is, is pretty, is pretty fascinating, pretty fascinating. And the idea of, uh, like you said, of like the, the resurrection in this case being this poor man is just sort of lost and controlled. Um, it, it is a really interesting concept. Did you, um, I know we talked about this probably a, a year, a couple years ago, whenever it came out, but did you get a chance to rewatch that episode of uh, cursed films that they, they covered this on shutter? Yes. Excellent episode. Yeah. It's super, super good. And the guy, uh, the, the guy that wrote the book serpent and rainbow Wade Davis is, is on there and they, they interview him about, uh, you know, his experience in Haiti and like, you know, his experience, uh, and his thoughts like after this movie came out and stuff and all that's really interesting. If you want some like supplemental material listeners, definitely check out Chris films. Their episode on this is really good. Yeah. It's one of my favorites for sure. Bill Pullman, I guess had some sort of like vision when he was in Haiti and they yes. had to like, shut production down for a bit. Yeah, it sounds like it was wild. Cause like the, the cast and crew were like trying to be respectful. And so they went um, they they really tried to endear themselves to the locals. And so they went to this ceremony, this voodoo ceremony to be blessed so that the film production would be blessed. 
And um, a few people had like reactions to it. And Bill Pullman was one of them. He didn't get go into like super specifics, but he just basically was, you could tell he was, he had an experience that like sort of rattled him. Yeah. And it seemed to like linger even after all these years, he's like, he's really beating around the bush. Like, he's like, I don't know if you guys are really open and he like, he, something happened and he believes it. Like, it's interesting. Yeah. The, there was a, um, one of the writers on this too, I guess he thinks that he got possessed while he was there and he had some sort of nervous breakdown and he was working, he was like rewriting the script. And then one morning Wes Craven walks out of his hotel room and the writer's standing in front of his door completely naked and he's just chain smoking cigarettes and he's like, Wes, I can't do this. I got to go home. I can't do it. It's just full nervous breakdown. So we have wild times in Haiti, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Wild times. And, um, all of that revolution stuff, like was, what yeah. was fresh when they went there to film. So apparently it was quite ambitious of them to go there to film in the first place. So they seemed like they were just a real ragtag, kind of naive group ready to just take on the world and stuff happened. <laughs> yeah. They, I think they did. So they, they started the production in a, on like a good foot, I think, mm-hmm. but they do, I think they start talking to, um, the, the VFX guy and he starts telling them how they had to like move some headstones in like a, an actual grave. Uh, or cemetery to make room for like this track there, a dolly track they were laying down and they ended up using like actual human bones and in, in certain scenes and stuff. So that's like some bad juju, bad vibes. <laughs> yeah. Some bad, bad juju, bad, bad, gri gri. Yeah. So they did. Yeah. They eventually had to leave Haiti. Uh, yeah. and they went to, I think the Dominican Republic cause, um, some of the extras, they hired like two or 3000 Haitian extras, which then eventually grew to like 5,000 and they started throwing rocks at the crew because they felt they were being underpaid. So they had to like flee and like run and get on an airplane and finish the production in the Dominicans, yeah. which is wild. It, it is. All that is wild. And, um, Oh, speaking of underpaying the Haitians, I thought, <laughs> I thought it was kind of ridiculous that, okay, so Dennis is there to get this zombie dust, for lack of a better term. And he's going to give, the man wants $1,000. $1,000. I don't know, this is 88, and the $1,000 was a lot more money than it is now. But still, I was like, you're going to hassle this man over $1,000, and Big Pharma is going to make millions off of this. I was like, Mozart, you need to stand your ground. You need to get more than just fame out of this. (laughs) (laughs) Mozart deserves more. Yeah, I was like, this white man's about to go back to the U.S. and screw you. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Whenever whenever he takes the poison that Mozart does, he gives him first off and, like, pours it in a cup and drinks the whole thing. Mm -hmm. I I had forgotten, like, what he actually did did you know because this is my second time watching i was like oh does he just like die because there's so much he drinks so much of that stuff swapped swapped it out yeah i was like this dude is gonna be a legitimate white zombie in a second that's wild (laughs) the uh we were talking about the location of this and like this movie is like a really beautiful movie it's just really you can tell they're really in Haiti. It's beautiful. And then um, just the people and the colors and the textures and the buildings are all great. 
And those scenes of him when he does eventually get the dust in the face and he's like walking around like, don't bury me, I'm not dead. Like his makeup and just the look of him stumbling to the streets and all of that. It's just like iconic. Yeah, he looks like he is about to die. And to cap that thing, probably the moment in this movie that scared me the most was when he is, you know, the, the toxin has really set in and he's paralyzed. He can't move, but he's awake. Um, and he's laying laying on the table and uh, Petro walks up to the doctor as he's examining the body and he's like, don't worry, I'll handle all the funeral arrangements. And then he buries the dude alive with a giant tarantula on his face. Oh, nightmare fuel. Oh my God. I know. I kept wondering. I was like, when he finally does like wake up, I was like, where is that spider? Yeah. (laughs) I don't think we ever see it again. Yeah. Thankfully. Thankfully. So, so yeah, all those graveyard scenes were like real spooky, like real kind of classic horror vibes. But I think the moment that startled me the most, and I do not remember this scene at all from my first viewing is when he's back in the U.S. and he's at dinner with everybody. And we've been watching him hallucinate and dream all over this movie. And the wife who's hosting, she stands up to like toast and she eats the glass like from her wine glass. I kept waiting for him to wake up. And then I was like, this is real. (laughs) That shocked me. Yeah, that is kind of a, a solid rug pull because as soon as, well, I mean, I think a hand reaches out of his soup too. So like some of it can't actually be real, right. but, but that lady does jump across the table and then he hauls ass. He goes right back to Haiti, which I don't know if I would be able to go back to Haiti after all that, like good on him, you know? You know, I kind of feel the same way. I kept thinking, why is this man not leaving? You know, yeah. but the Tom Tom Makut is like, they have been very yeah. merciful with you and you will not leave. Like, why are you still here? Yeah, that that guy got a nail put through his scrotum and he still went back to Haiti. <laughs> like, oh. damn. Speaking of that scene, I wasn't 100% sure what happened to him because, you know, it all happens like off camera. So, like, yeah, you can tell he's yeah. naked, but I was at first I was like... Did he put it in his leg? And then when they dump him out on the street and his underwear all bloody, I'm like, oh, no, no, it's not his leg. Oh, no, no. (laughs) I thought they uh, I thought they put it in the worst place possible. But then he does clarify like, no, it was just the scrotum. Oh, buddy. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for thanks for letting us know. We were all concerned. We were clarifying that. But I do. It does make you kind of question his motivation a little bit, which it is established that he's an adventurer. He's out in the Amazon drinking unknowns with a shaman. He's an anthropologist. So this isn't like purely fueled by like money or whatever. He really is like Mm -hmm. interested in other cultures and such. But also, I guess he's like in love with Marielle. And that's 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 always the plot point that gets you back to places you shouldn't be is when you're in love, you know. So I guess I guess um, that's not not her main function in this movie, but like one of her main functions. Because otherwise, yeah, he would not he wouldn't go back. He's already got the powder. There's no other reason for him to go back except to rescue her. Yeah. 
And he, he does save her, actually, so it's a good thing he does go. She's about to be decapitated by Petro, who just loves cutting folks' heads off and drinking their blood. That dude is evil. He is. Yeah, he's a great, he's a pretty great villain, too. He, he is, yeah. I I like him as a villain. I like really all the characters in this movie. I think I like Mozart's kind of my favorite. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I can fully articulate why. He just seems like a bit of a shyster and he's got a big personality, I guess. Yeah. They do make it clear though, that he is actually like a genius and mm-hmm. um, Dennis and his narration says that like he does what like Harvard PhD wouldn't be able to pull off with like the skill and everything. So I do like that, even though he's kind of like a, seems very like just sort of like fun loving dude. Mm -hmm. He's also like a very, like a serious like craftsman at what he's doing. Yeah. It does seem extremely involved how he makes that powder. It takes a lot of different herbs and like there's a, some sort of frog they used Mm -hmm. and some other, I think sea creatures and stuff. Um, there's, it's like the same, the same sort of toxin that's found in a puffer fish, I think is, is the main Mm -hmm. thing that, that turns folks into zombies, uh, which is like you said, like a real thing that happens, which is, which is pretty wild. There was, when I was in college, there was a Haitian kid that I just very briefly knew. And he would talk about zombies in Haiti. This is before I'd seen this movie. And I thought he was just exaggerating. I was like, there's no, that there's no way it doesn't make sense, but it is a legitimate thing, which is pretty wild. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine if you see like your uncle walking down the street? Nope. <laughs> we buried you. <laughs> we buried you seven years ago. <laughs> Cannot imagine that. Oh, another scary moment. I'm just looking over my notes here. Another thing that just really like jarred me quite a bit is um, when Dennis wakes up in bed next to the woman who's been decapitated and there's just this bright red blood just all over him. Whoo! Was, yeah, was unsettling. It, uh, that gave me some Godfather vibes. Yep. in that moment, hundred percent, hundred percent. And I also thought it was Marielle that was uh, decapitated in the bed with him, and I was like, "Oh my God, she died!" Like, no way. But <laughs> no, it's um, it was somebody's sister. Chris, I can't remember. It was Christoph's sister. Christoph's sister. Christoph. Christoph's yeah. sister. Yeah. Yeah, and well, I think too, like we were talking about earlier. There's a lot of, there's definitely Nightmare on Elm Street vibes happening here, like in totally, all of yeah. the hallucination scenes, and especially in a scene like the dining room scene where we see one thing that's not real and then one thing that is real. It's that whole blending of you don't know what's in the dream world and what's in the real world. And I thought yeah. that that Nightmare on Elm Street signature was kind of all over this movie, and of course I loved it. <laughs> yeah, it does feel kind of like when the third act I get it not not entirely just the third act but specifically when the third act hits Wes is like I just got I can't help myself and like you know just starts throwing everything at the, at the wall to see what sticks because you've got these moments of like you know people being dragged to hell and like you know furniture spinning around and moving on its own accord and straps like strapping Petro down and spirits flying and it just like really kind of goes off the wall and it is very dreamlike. It, it totally is. Yeah. Like, like he's pulling from his experience with Nightmare on Elm Street. 
which is fun. You know? Yeah, it's, it's fun. It's, Although it's funny because, uh, you know, you always hear that Wes Craven tried to break out of like the horror realm. And again, according to Cursed Films, like he thought that this movie would be a chance for him to kind of like get out of horror, um, mm. which I will say, while this movie has disturbing imagery, the first like two thirds of it, if you took out some of the more gruesome aspects, this movie could easily be a drama. Like it's it's not... It's not it's not the same brand of horror that Wes Craven had done before. So I appreciate some of that like restraint. But yeah, by the time man, by the time we get to the end, I was like, we have given up. We are full. That is a definitely yeah. a horror movie now. It it does kind of go well out of its way to to ground the movie at the same time. Like it's it gets very fantastical, but I really appreciate the uh, the hate the revolution that was happening when they were actually there filming with um, the dictator baby doc had left but his um, militia the Tantan Maku were still there when they were filming and they're like that that's something that actually happened and they they made sure to include it in the movie which which I appreciate like you know things like that they didn't really have to do that um, but it really like dates it dates the movie in a way that I think is positive I agree and I think all of that revolution, corrupt government message, everything going on at the fringes of this story, I think is all relevant to what we are seeing in the story. So I think having that there, while it seems like it's not always relevant, I think it adds like a level of richness to the movie and to the story. And it also like further explains why the... uh, the extras that they hired might have been quick to start throwing rocks if they thought somebody was treating them poorly. You know, foreigners specifically came over and started treating them poorly. They just got rid of a dictator and they're not going to, they're not going to put up with anybody else's mess, you know, yeah. which is understandable. Yeah, no, the people are amped. The people are yeah. amped. <laughs> 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 they're feeling good. <laughs> they're not going to. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're ready to stand up for themselves, for sure. Uh huh. They're not taking any shit from Wes Craven <laughs> at all. Nor should they. Nor should they. You're, you're right. Oh, RIP Wes, you're my favorite. Um, okay, Pour one out, is, yeah. is there anything else that you want to talk about before we maybe get a little bit more specifically into the end? I think we just about covered everything I wanted to speak on. Um, unless you had any other ideas of what like the imagery of the bride might have. Cause I, I jotted that down, but I couldn't quite like get my arms around maybe what the significance of it was. I think, so I think that's just maybe a little bit of a confusion of cultures because I don't think mm-hmm. she was actually a bride. A lot of other cultures wear white for lots of things. And some cultures wear white as funeral clothing um, or as other celebratory clothing. So I think that she was just dressed in white when she died. I don't think that she was actually a bride. Um, So that's my my only thought on that. Yeah, that very well could be. I, I didn't know what, what it was supposed to mean necessarily. It's super cool imagery though. It's very spooky. It's haunting, you know, it works. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so I, I just felt like, like I said, this whole movie was, it felt kind of, to me, straightforward and like pretty restrained and we're just on this scientific journey. You know, this anthropologist is like interested, but very grounded, like sort of hesitant to just lean into the, the spiritual. 
And so, and the whole movie is pretty much that way. And I feel like the end is just a not, it doesn't quite match the tone of everything else. Mm. Um, it gets very, yeah, very fantastical, very fast. I mean, it just pivots from like a little bit of science, a little bit of religion to like full on, we believe it all now. It's, yeah, souls in jars, like you said. It's ghosts, it's decapitations, it's evil. I can't remember what he had on, but I think his attire, Petro's attire changed. And all of a sudden, mm. Dennis is like hero, super white magic. Like, I don't know. It just, it, it felt very abrupt uh, to me. Yeah, I, I agreed with you for sure. He has some sort of like... Uh, I don't know if it's a, a leopard or a jaguar, some sort of like cat, like big cat, like over the top of his yes, head. Yes, his spirit like, animal. His, yeah, he like channels this this big cat. It's it's like a it's a, that's a little bit goofy. I mm-hmm. think most of the other imagery is like okay, you know, they're setting these spirits free from these jars, and uh, he's sending Petro to hell, and you know, it's. I can roll with it well enough, probably because like I have seen Nightmare on Elm Street before. But if if you just went into this movie sort of expecting it to be a little more um, realistic, I guess, in, in its approach to the the voodoo religion and like the creation of a of a voodoo zombie, like yeah, you'd probably be thrown off a little bit. I think I think it works overall though. Like I, it doesn't totally ruin the the ending of the movie for me, but it probably could have be hand could have been handled with a little more tact. Yeah. To me, I feel like the end is the, is, is the part in the movie that feels the least respectful towards voodoo for sure. Um, and I would have, I would have loved it if we could have had like just a little bit more spiritually ambiguous ending. Um, because we've already established in the movie that like, we're comfortable with the mystery. You know, we've put that forth through the whole movie. So they could have easily still had a big showdown with Petro. Dennis still has to kill Petro to get to save Marielle. Um, but yeah, I don't think we needed to like physically release the souls from the jars. <laughs> and yeah. like even the little, um, I mean, I do appreciate how at the end, whenever we see Petro get like strapped to the chair and all of that, at first, I was like, oh, and then again, we realized, oh, that's just in Dennis. This is in his head. Marielle's not seeing that, you know, mm-hmm. like that's again, that's in his head. So I did appreciate that little bit of nuance. But I was like, I just I, I would have just loved it. We still could have had a big showdown, um, but I would have preferred. Yeah, just a more spiritually ambiguous ending where maybe Dennis believes a little more. But he's still the same grounded kind of, you know, anthropologist that we met at the beginning. Just a little more enlightened. Sure. Yeah, I agree. It, yeah, it would have like sort of driven the point home a little better. Mm-hmm. It, it just feels like uh, like a Hollywood ending, kind of like, hey, you need a little pizzazz, you know? Yes. It, it, you know what? Exactly, Bob. It smacks of studio head is like, isn't that a horror movie? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cra- Craven might have been trying to play it a little more straight, and they're like, "No, nah, you gotta you rub a little of that Freddy Krueger on the end there." <laughs> Where's yeah. the ghosts? <laughs> All right, Bob. What are your final thoughts on the Serpent and the Rainbow? So I, I, I think this is a pretty effective movie overall. 
I think it's like the craft of it is is there. I really like that they shot on location in Haiti. I think that adds really a lot of value to the movie. And the fact that they hired a lot of locals to take part in the production as well just adds to the auth- authenticity of everything. And like I mentioned, I like that they, they included all, all of the... Uh, the actual history that was happening at the time with the dictator baby doc leaving it, it really like makes the movie feel grounded, even though all these really extreme fantastical kind of things are happening. I think the way they kind of explore, uh, the, the voodoo zombie is really interesting. And I haven't seen a lot of the older movies that sort of explore this idea. You know, it's uh, most of, me and I'm sure everybody else uh, is is a little more accustomed to the Romero style zombie, but I think that sort of the uh, the two paths are sort of interesting to like walk down and and see the the distinct differences between the two. Uh, so the way they handle it in this movie, I think, is super cool. I think Kristoff is like really effective in the way Mozart sort of takes you through all the steps and making the drug to create a zombie. It's really interesting and like very thorough and well thought out. It's got some good spooky moments too. The dream sequences specifically are really spooky. Uh, It's hard to forget about somebody having a nail driven through their scrotum. Also pretty spooky. Uh, The also the, um, the behind the scenes sort of information that you get with that cursed films uh, episode is it just sort of like adds an extra layer of like mysticality, I guess like there's, there's actual like religious things, I guess happening on set, or at least they were perceived, perceived that way. Who knows? Maybe they're, they're drinking some of the local hooch and, you know, hallucinating themselves or whatever, but it's just, it adds, it adds to the Mm -hmm. the interest for me. Um, Overall, I dig the movie. It's one of Craven's sort of like underseen, Movies that I think it's totally worth watching, though it doesn't—it's not perfect in any way, but I think it's very interesting, very well made. What do you think, Nicole? Um, well, I really enjoyed this movie on this watch. Um, ever since I saw the Cursed Films episode on it, I've been meaning to revisit it, so I'm, I'm glad we had an excuse to do so. And um, the first time I saw it, like I said, I was young, and I remember being let down by it. Like it just felt slow. And I think I didn't know what to expect. And I think a lot of the larger themes were just going right over my head. Um, But I really enjoy how the story unfolds. And we get to know a pretty rich tapestry of characters. Um, It'd be great to spend a little more time with some of them like Lucian and Mozart. Um, But what we do get from those characters, even in a little bit of time, I think is really compelling. And like I said before, when it comes to the portrayal of the religion of voodoo, it was actually more balanced than I expected, having heard criticism of this film before. And I really think it was smart to keep the sensational stuff in Dennis's head and not in the real world, um, which is appropriate since I'm sure he has a lot of preconceived notions about voodoo, just like the audience does, at least an American audience. Um, And that way we got some really cool imagery without sacrificing the legitimacy of the more practical aspects of the religion. Um, Of course, I'm a white person with a Christian background. So uh, I'm sure people of color, practitioners of voodoo may have a completely different perspective and a lot more insight on that. Um, But that was just sort of my feeling. I was, I was surprised that it was as balanced as it was. Um, I think I come away from this story with a very clear delineation between the faithful and the abusers 
of voodoo, which I think is really important. Um, and this movie to me does not paint voodoo as the villain, but rather it paints the abuse of power as the villain. And I think that's really important. Um, Petro is the obvious villain here. Um, and he abuses every form of power he has access to, not just spiritual and voodoo, but also political. Like I said, we've got that, the whole political thing that's going on at the same time. And he's wrapped up in all of it. Um, and ultimately, I think what I take away from this movie is that religion can be a beautiful practice, but it can also be a harmful tool when wielded to manipulate and control people. And of course, in this movie, it's we're talking about literally stealing somebody's soul and controlling them. Um, but but it's a metaphor. That same metaphor comes up, you know, time and time again in religious horror movies. And I think it is uh, a story that I think was relevant in 88. And I think it's a story that's going to continue to be relevant. Yeah. Well said. If folks like this movie, Bob, what other stuff should they watch or read or listen to? I have a lot, um, a lot of options for you, actually. So this, this sort of uh, uh, voodoo, Haitian voodoo, zombie based on a book thing happened in 88 with this movie. It also happened in 1932 with a movie called white zombie. And so the, um, a little bit of history of white zombie. I still have not seen this movie yet. Um, this is the first like zombie movie to, to have been made, but there is a journalist from Atlanta. Uh, his name is William Seabrook. And he, he wrote a book called The Magic Island. It was released in 1928. And it's got a chapter called Dead Men Working in Cane Fields. It's about three zombies, very much the same way we see in this movie, uh, that were created by voodoo priests in Haiti. And the book inspired the movie White Zombie from 1932. Uh, something interesting about William Seabrook, though, was he was, I guess, he... he fought in world war one he was gassed became an alcoholic he maybe had a couple screws loose after the war he traveled around the world trying to find somebody who would actually cook him human flesh he wanted to know what it tasted like oh i've heard of this and he eventually found someone in paris to do it for him and they prepared the meat in three different ways and he tried all three and said it tasted kind of like veal which is wild that the dude that wrote the book that the first zombie movie was based on then went on to crave and consume human flesh. It's just like a wild story to consider. Can't make this stuff up. Can't do it. Um, so yeah, check out uh, uh, the book, The Magic Island from 1928, also White Zombie from 1932. Um I Walked with a Zombie from 1943 as well. Uh, there's a Hammer Horror movie called Plague of the Zombies from 1966. And all of these are that like uh, Haitian voodoo style zombie. Uh, there's also a bit of voodoo in Child's Play, 1988. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, uh, Dumbala is is uh, the, the deity that... Um, they pray to whenever what's his face prays to Charles Lee Ray prays to whenever he transfers uh, his body into the Chucky doll. Yeah. I think that's a classic example of negative stereotypes yeah, totally. in uh, American cinema. <laughs> yeah. Um, the skeleton key from 2005 is a movie that I like quite a bit. It's very much Love about it. 
to- yeah, it's the Louisiana voodoo specifically. It's a good one for sure. And then uh, American Horror Story Coven um, kind of has a little bit of that. It's mainly about witches, but it definitely has some voodoo stuff in there with Murray Laveau being a major character in it. Yep. Uh, so yeah, there's a few other things you can check out. I also recommend listening to Dr. John if you want some music inspired by Louisiana voodoo. Check it out. Oh, yeah. love it. Love it. So um, literally everything on my list is what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I do have, I do have, well, I have a couple more things. Um, but it's really interesting that you and I came up with very similar lists. Um, I would also add to everything Bob just said, uh, I will echo Skeleton Key just because I do love that movie. It's a solid, like, I'm pretty sure it's PG-13 horror even. So, you know, it's a good, especially if you've got like teens or preteens who are getting into horror, throw on Skeleton Key. It's, it's a good ride. Yeah, it's a good Um, Yes. Uh, also, I would add The Princess and the Frog. Yeah. The Disney movie. Uh, I love that movie so much. It was the last 2D animated uh, f- film that Disney made. They may never do another one. It's a beautiful movie. Um, and it also has, uh, interestingly enough, two different depictions of the practice of voodoo. You have Mama Odie, and she's like the white magic She's good. She's out there helping people. And then you have my favorite Disney villain, Dr. Facilier, the shadow man with his little dancing voodoo dolls. And, you know, he's greedy and he's nefarious. And uh, just 10 out of 10 would recommend Princess and the Frog. And then um, also the Serpent and the Rainbow novel by Wade Davis. Um, I just bought it. I've not cracked it open yet. Um, But I was able to find a first edition for a really affordable price. And so... I'm really interested um, to read just the straight anthropological story that inspired, you know, this like sort of big sensational movie. So, heck yeah, I'm sure that's super interesting, and I, I'm sure the movie leaves out a lot of pertinent information too. So, yeah, let me know how you like that. That sounds very worth reading. I will. I will. Yeah. All right, Bob. The time has come. Tell the people who you are, what you're doing, and where they can find you. Hey, I'm Bob. I am from the Straight Chilling Podcast, and we are a weekly horror movie review show. Uh, We just started our 10th year of podcasting, so we have a pretty large back catalog. I know, crazy. Uh, You can find us everywhere you get your podcasts. Just search Straight Chilling, and we'll pop right up. And we've got over 400 episodes. There's got to be something out there you'd like to hear us talk about. We also have a YouTube channel with uh, YouTube content that you can't get anywhere else. You can also find our podcast episodes on YouTube. We have, we're on all the social medias. Just search Straight Chilling Podcast. And yeah, you'll be able to find us. And uh, my listeners, they know who Straight Chilling is. They hear me talk about you guys quite a bit. Um, But I would be remiss to just uh, not mention that Straight Chilling is the reason why I do podcasting. Um, Because I had, I had like, I started as a blog. I had thoughts out there, you know. But um, after guesting on Straight Chilling a couple times, I was like, you know what? Like, I think I'm going to take a crack at this. And uh, it's been such a fun journey. And so... Um, I always like to say thank you guys for inspiring me to, you know, just pick up a mic and do it. And also my connection to the horror community, it would not be what it is without you guys. We have our 
Slack channel where we, you know, we chat every day and we support each other and we share our lives and we share our nerdiness. And I'm just really, really thankful for it. So um, I'm uh, 10 years like that's such a such an accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. We definitely never thought we'd be doing it this long, but yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that you started, you know, recording your own episodes. Like we're just three idiots. If, you know, if we can do this, anybody, anybody can do this for sure. And everything you put out is absolutely fantastic. I I actually, I love that you're really delving into religion and horror. It's such a perfect niche for you. Um, and I look forward to your episodes and the fact that you're starting to get into different religions too, is really super awesome. So, uh, thank you for hanging out with us in the Slack channel and, and, you know, guesting on our show whenever, whenever you have the time to, and, and for putting out awesome content yourself. So thank you, Nicole. Oh, well, thanks. Um, so as for me, uh, next month is of course women in horror month, which is something that I always really look forward to every year. And um, I'm going to be covering Silent Hill with Jacqueline from A Cut Above. Really excited about that episode. She's never seen it. So I'm like, hopefully you're in for a treat. It's a movie I really enjoy. Um, in the meantime, uh, you guys know what to do. Rate and review the show. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Light and Shadow Pod. You can also sign up to become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash light and shadow pod. So before February, watch Silent Hill. And until next time, stay spooky. Stay spooky.